0: The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, what's going on, man?
1: I I'm I'm more thrilled than I normally am to be here. I don't blame I, you. I, I I know you want to take credit for it, but that's not why. You're excited to hang so, out with me. That's yeah. exactly so, what so, it is. So let's not do our like beginning of the show riff. Okay. You and, go right and, into and, it. And let's bring on somebody that I'm excited you to. You mean we
0: got somebody more accomplished than me on the show, here? Yes. Okay. So
1: so hopefully we have on the line former Pittsburgh Steeler, Hall of Famer, me and Joe Green. Joe, are you there? Yes I am, and I'm I'm more accomplished at the settling
0: argument oh well you, you'll be good for us then don't worry we're, 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 we're gonna have a good old time with you today
1: <laughs> you, you know i i i didn't see anywhere in your biography anything about mediator <laughs>
0: we'll, we'll work on. no that. no we'll no. work on that
1: so so joe you know before before we get to some of, of of your story one of the things one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is that you're working with the gridiron greats mike Dick's organization which yes. which we've talked to other former NFL players about this very important cause because people just don't understand that all of the people like you that have made the NFL what it is today. A lot of a lot of you didn't have health insurance for when you left the game to take care of the way that your bodies were treated during the game. How did you get involved in this organization and what does it mean to you? Well,
2: um Jeff, let me say this, that uh, my first uh, intro into this organization was when they uh, they honored me as one of their Hall of Fame gridiron greats people, and that was some while ago, 2013, I think, and uh, I knew a little bit about them, but I learned more about uh, what they were doing to help uh, uh former athletes that had, uh, had some difficult times, uh, off the gridiron. So, and that, that just caught my attention because I was looking at the same situations, uh, um, uh, small pension, lack of, uh, lack of, uh, health insurance and how was I going to take care of myself and my family? Um, a little bit later on down the road. And I, you know, I was in the middle of, well, I had been retired at that time, some, some, some years. And I was starting to feel the, uh, the pain of, of, of not being taken care of from the standpoint of health insurance and my pension.
1: if I if I recall correctly, during your career, not after your career, you were already having some nerve issues. Is is that something for for those of us that don't know how it worked with regard to players who left the game? Was that something for that was covered by health insurance, by the Players Association, by the NFL, or did it become your responsibility the second that you left the game?
2: Well, it was my responsibility to take care of to take care of myself. Uh, uh, well, I, let me, let me, let me go back, let me go back a little bit. Uh, when I retired from, from the game, I became a coach, uh, in the National Football League. And, and through being a coach, um, uh, some of those things were taken, being taken care of
0: by the insurance that I had through the, through the team. So how can, how can people get involved? I mean, I know that I always joke with Jeff, it's pork rinds that are kind of making the difference here with, with the DECA organization. How can people get involved and, and help you guys since uh, it seems like people who should be aren't getting that done for you?
2: Well, uh, just uh, there's a help number, a headline that you can call and see how to, to join and make a contribution, whether it's uh, time and money. But, uh, and interest is, 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 is the big part. That's the big thing is to show an interest and in that, that there are people out here that, uh, you know, we've been, we've been, we've been falsely identified as guys that made a lot of money and should still have a lot of money to be able to take care of ourselves. But, uh, to dispel some of that, uh, the guys doing my era and before didn't make a lot of money and we were we were kind of bruised a little bit up on our retirement
1: and uh we we had some difficult times in making the transition so so Joe one of the things about your career um I have to tell you, as somebody who lived in Pittsburgh for a while and, and has a lot of family in Pittsburgh, you don't have that Pittsburgh ac- accent. Um, <laughs> a, a, as somebody, well, I'm a Texan. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, so as as a Texan, uh, one of the things I believe when you were an assistant coach, you also were doing some scouting, right? Yes. So, so yes. you know. Nowadays, scouting is, is a lot easier in that you have more access to more film and things like that. You, however, when you were coming up, you played at a smaller school in North Texas. How was it that you were discovered to become a first-round pick in the NFL?
2: Well, as, as we say in the National Football League, if you play football, doesn't matter where you play we can find you. And let me say, when I became a scout, we had a little book. No, it was a big book. It looked to be probably about six and a half to eight inches thick. And it covered every single player that lined up to play football, whether it was a a freshman or a junior, sophomore, senior, fifth-year guy, wherever they played, they were on that list. And some of those guys I had to scout, and we had them on the list, but they wasn't on the film. <laughs> so it was very difficult to find some of them. You know,
0: obviously. that's
2: uh, You know, that's, that's what uh, we always were proud to say. Uh, you know, I'm an NFL scout. I can find you anywhere you go.
0: You know, obviously you love being part of the team and the team honors and winning the championships and how special that must have been. But you've had some individual honors, Hall of Famer, one of two Steelers with their numbers retired. What's it like for you to to get that recognition for what you've given to the game and to the Steelers to be able to be honored the way you have been after your playing time? And, And by the way, to the city.
2: Well, you know, um, I feel really, really good to be have been a part of the Steelers during my playing days and, and afterwards, and I still feel very good about having been a part of the Steelers and still call myself a Steeler. Uh, it's a personal thing that I'm just – Happy about that. I have I have had that experience and have been in in, in in the city of Pittsburgh, who was a real. They they didn't have a good football team, we didn't have a good football team when I came there, but they were a football city, and that was special to me. and That was part of my, part of my learning, part of my upbringing, and um, I can't say that my honor my honor really comes about for being a part of it it's not seeking it uh, having a, a glorified moment in it but it's just being there this past week weekend I was in Pittsburgh for the um, giving the rings of uh, of uh, five gentlemen that just recently uh, received a Hall of Fame induction. And as they were announcing those guys, what I could think about was when I first came to Pittsburgh. And I think when I first came to Pittsburgh, we we may have had two guys, three guys in the Hall of Fame. And I know, I think Johnny Blood was one of them. Uh, uh, A gentleman named uh, Bale and Mr. Rooney, Art Rooney. And since that time, that night, we had five. Coach, Bill Cowell, former coach. And then we had an all-time great scout, Bill Nunn. We had um, Donnie Shell, who I played with. We had uh, Troy Palomalu and we had an, an offensive lineman, Sanika, who Bill Cowell coached. There were five guys that were being in inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And let me tell you, that, that was a proud moment for me to, to, to sit there and watch those guys get their rings and having been in, 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 inducted into the Hall of Fame. And all I could think about was how great that was. and And, and when I see that, I'm thinking about what it was when I first came there. And that just, that just brought
1: tears to my eyes of of tears of joy. Well, well, Joe, that's for, for people that, that are, that are younger, they, they don't, I don't think they understand or appreciate that before you got to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh was a, was a woeful organization. They were not good at all. Woeful is a good word. (laughs) Woeful is a good word. (laughs) And, and when you got there, it, it was hard at first, but, but the amount of talent, the amount of competition that came out of there, and the amount of all-time great players from you and LC Greenwood and Lynn Swan and, I mean, I could go, Terry Bradshaw, you can go through the list on, on all three sides uh, of a team and the coaching, Hall of Fame coaching. What was it like to, and, and to play for a defense that will, a hundred years from now, people will know what the steel curtain was. What was it like to play, not just for an organization, but for, it looked like a group of guys that were just in it together from beginning to end and grew together, and it seems like even beyond football, kind of stayed together. Absolutely.
2: a Great, great experience, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I say all the time, I knew Mel Blunt before he became Mel Blunt. Terry Bradshaw before he became Terry Bradshaw. Franco Harris before he became Franco Harris. Jack Lambert before he became Jack Lambert. And that, and that goes to say that we were all there together at the same time. We were young and we were learning from an outstanding head coach, uh, Chuck Noll, who was the same guy, but we were one in 13. My first year, until the first year we won the Super Bowl in 74. He didn't change. He just got better players. And he got help from the front office, the ownership, and the scouting department that uh, was following uh, his lead in terms of the type of guys that he wanted to be coaching. And I'll tell you, it was a great experience to – to, to look back on it as you're experiencing it. And let me say that in his second year and his third year, maybe even into his fourth year, there were people that on the team had probably wasn't believing in what was going on because we kept doing the same thing over and over again. And I must say, I probably was one of those guys that saying, Coach, come on, man. Let's do something differently. <laughs> This isn't working. And, uh, but he stayed with it. But he, ch- what changed was different players in those numbers.
1: Joe, didn't you actually come up with an, a new way to approach lining up on defense as well?
2: Well, I, I, I was the guinea pig, I'd say. <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, you're talking about shade on the, on the nose, on the center. Yep. And we, we called it uh, the cock tackle position. And uh, that derived from uh, an even front where we had tackles over the guards, defensive tackles over the guards, ends over the, the offensive tackles. And we called uh, slants. You know, every defense did it, left and right, slant. And when when I was slanting, I was on the left side, they would call it, Liz, left side tackle slant to the center. Well, the center kept blocking me when I was going that direction. He was coming over the top, and uh, eventually, the our defensive line coach and, and myself and myself, we said, "Well, let me just line up in the thing and see what happens." So I lined up on in the slant and found out that I was I was working probably in the high uh, 90 percentile from the standpoint of defeating the block, as opposed to the other way, when I was slanting, it was something like 10 or 15%. So we found out that it was the best for me to line up in the thing. And, you know, we when we first unveiled that defense, was in the playoff game against the Buffalo Bills, uh, I don't know, at 74, season 74. And we were playing the Bills and the Juice. The first time we played the Bills in that year, the Juice got a hundred, 212 yards on us. That particular time in the playoffs, first round of the playoffs, he got 50. The next time we played it, we played it in, in, in Oakland in the AFC Championship game in 74. And the Oakland Raiders were tough, tough, tough. They were—they exemplified when you say tough and mean and hungry. They were the guys. They ran the ball twenty-one times for nineteen yards. So Four I four-three, we call it. I, the I, next I, game was the Super Bowl. You asked me this question now. That's right. <laughs> we played the Minnesota Vikings, and they ran the ball. Nineteen times for twenty-one yards, and they were a pretty good football team, just like the B- just like uh, the Bills and the Raiders, and that was so much fun, so much fun to play and be a part of that uh, that three-game uh, playoff, counting the Super Bowl, to be the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Super Bowl victorious after my rookie year of winning one ball game, which was the first one, in the history of the Steelers up to that point. Everybody in the world was surprised about the Pittsburgh Steelers winning the Super Bowl. If you were live and was a football fan, you were
0: surprised too. Oh, and they've been able to continue that success on since he left. I have to ask you, you're such a nice guy to talk to, and I know that you were a nice guy, but you got this nickname that you were mean. You weren't really a fan of it, but you had it. Can you tell me about the nickname? <laughs> well,
2: um, the nickname came about when I got drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, moving from Denton, Texas, Uh, home of the North Texas State University Mean Green football team, Green, G-R-E-E-N. And it came about when we uh, played pretty good defense and they started calling us the Mean Green. And when I came to Pittsburgh, they called me Mean Joe Green. Some sports writers started doing that, and uh, it was hard to refute that especially when my second game well, as a pro football player, I got, I got a penalty for hitting uh, the quarterback out of bounds, 15-yard penalty, and that was in New York. So when they get their teeth into it, I mean, it was hard to get, get them loose from it. Who was the quarterback? <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't know if you know this guy. Francis talking. Uh, never heard of him.
0: <laughs> I, I love me, how you me. remember. I,
1: I've heard of him. I saw, Look, I saw you play. I, I can't tell you. Joe, we, we could talk to you all day, and, and, and your nickname should be Gentleman Joe, not Mean Joe. But uh, we really want to thank you for, for coming on, highlighting something that's really important for people to know about and people to participate in in the Gridiron Greats, and we're going to continue to put out the word Regarding that, and, and get people to help. Uh, I hope we Please. can talk. I hope we can we can talk to you again someday because there's so much more to ask you, including about you apparently throwing th- something into a stand at a Philadelphia Eagles game. <laughs> <laughs> Were you there then? <laughs> no, no, no. Jason would like to think I'm that old, but <laughs> I, I wasn't there. And, and I gotta say, you know, it's it's. Who I never thought I'd get this opportunity. I know you're not going to send me a jersey, but. We, we just like to say thanks, Mean Joe. <laughs> hey, you guys are from
2: Philadelphia. Do you know what stadium that was in when, he, when the ball came
1: selling out of the stadium? Was it Franklin Field? There you go. See?
0: Very nice. Right. Thank- <laughs> Joe, Joe, we can't thank you enough for the time, and we will continue putting out to try and get you guys the support that you've earned and deserve. Uh, thanks so much for giving us some time today. Thank you so much. Jeff, every time we talk to these alumni, um, I love what they've given to the game and how much they still love it. And I continue to not understand how they cannot be taken care of for everything they gave to the game.
1: Yeah. well, I mean, when when you when you you and I were talking beforehand about the 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 few number of players that are even still around from a jet, it's not that long ago. And it's their bodies take so much of a pounding, especially back then when they didn't have the science and the preparation beforehand. And it's it, like when I ask the question, I'm still shocked that I asked the question because I, at least I know the answer to most people listening. I don't think they understand that. And Joe's right. He's talking about most people think that they, they made a lot of money back then. They didn't. He got it taken care of when he was a coach, not when he was a player. Exactly. And, and, and by the way, he played for one of the great organizations. I mean, if you're going to be a player, the place you're going to get taken care of is the Pittsburgh Steelers organization. But they they don't. And it, it is baffling to me. You know, we talked uh, and we've talked about the NFL in general. And in the past, we talked to Keyshawn Johnson a few weeks ago about it. We're going to talk to Jesse Washington about it. But the NFL just never seems to be ahead of the curve. It it can be such a great organization. It provides so much, but they miss main opportunities to take care of their own and take care of others without being shoved into the position to do so.
0: Yeah. It's just, uh, it's something that we'll continue to bring up and continue to talk about. And, Look, Avita told me we continue talking to Hall of Fame athletes like this. Huh? Uh, look, I, I can't tell. I mean, he
1: really did. Like, I, I, it wasn't planned for me to say that you're gentleman, Joe, but when when I hear. I really could sit down with some of these guys, and we have sat down with some of them off the air. You could just sit down all day, not say anything, and just listen. Oh, it's, it's storytelling with whoever they are. Yeah, I mean, and, and the fact that they remember— I don't know about you, I can't remember <laughs> I can't, what I had for lunch. And and, 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 and he remembers
0: Frank Harkenden, where the hit was, that he got— fu- oh,
1: Yeah, I mean, you and I do a lot of research for these things, and like when I ask a question about him throwing something at at, Frank, at, 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 at an Eagles game— I I always worry about whether he's going to go, what are you talking about? No, not only that, he remembers which stadium it was at because people don't understand the Steelers. You grew up knowing the Steelers as an organization that was like a top organization always was in contention when they drafted him. They sucked. (laughs) And somehow, whoever did the drafting for that. Turned it all around. And it wasn't just turned it around. Look at the number of Hall of Famers. Lynn Swan. I mean, I, I couldn't name them all. He just kept going on and on.
0: All right. We'll save the rest of our Pittsburgh love for another day. Why don't we hit the break when we come back? We'll right to Dunn. Jesse Washington interview and then come back to close the show.
1: Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the engineers labor employer cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Jeff, uh,
0: there are some weighty issues out there and we know nobody better to go to than the man himself, Jesse Washington from the undefeated senior writer, author, man of many talents, including shots on the basketball court. Jesse, how you doing today, man?
3: I'm good, man. It's great to be here with you guys.
0: I don't know if you're surviving your basketball times, but we're going to use your brain a little bit here and try and ask you about some of the stuff that's going on in the world. Uh, These past weeks have been kind of crazy in sports. Lots of different stories that touch on race and culture and society. And so we really thought that you'd be somebody to talk to. A few weeks ago, we saw the leak of emails that were released with John Gruden going back to 2011 that were discovered during the Washington football team investigation, Uh, homophobic comments, racist comments, sexist comments, you name it. They're kind of included in there. Before we go further with it, I'm wondering what your reaction was when they came out and, and how it was handled with him being able to resign and coach his last game.
3: Well, you know, I was disgusted and uh, I always sort of felt some sort of way that that Super Bowl that he won in Tampa was really Tony Dungy's team. So uh, that came to mind. But I mean, the comments, I was like, man, he's got to go like immediately, you know. And so, you know, sometimes they let people uh, go gracefully. Sometimes they go in disgrace. And apparently he had built up enough, you know, leverage, capital, goodwill, undeserved, I might add that that his exit was somewhat more graceful than, than it probably should have been, you know, but everything done in the dark will come to light. That's what my mom always told me. And uh, I'm really glad that this came out. I think that his comments, he definitely deserved to be um, immediately gotten rid of, and he should never work in the NFL again, um, for what it's worth, because he's already rich and famous and everything, and can do whatever he wants. But I was, you know, I was just disgusted. And I, and I thought that, um, You know, my colleague at The Undefeated, the great columnist, Bill Roden, who knows far more about the NFL than I do, had a terrific, terrific column. I urge everybody to go read it. And it said, "Okay, yeah, this is horrible. But let's think about the culture that just allowed him to do this for years and probably decades. And was just like, oh, ha ha, coach. Yeah. Wink, wink. Oh, good one. You know, yeah, LOL. You know, what about this, this culture that enabled him? Who are all the other people who participated in this? Where their emails at? Who are the ones who encouraged him? He worked at ESPN, which is my employer, you know? So this was probably not unknown to the people he worked with at ESPN. Why did nobody step up before? That, as the great Bill Roden pointed out, is the bigger question that needs to be answered right now.
1: See, what frustrated me, Jesse, wasn't, wasn't even just that it happened before, it happened last week or two weeks ago because after the first comments came out about Demora Smith, he wasn't fired after that. He wasn't suspended after that. They waited, and and it, the reaction by Mark Davis was basically to do nothing other than to say that's not the Raider way. And only after the Raiders did nothing, and more more came out through the New York Times, were they forced into the position of removing him. So it, it, you can be disgusted about what's happened over the history of all this, in the last. Decade And beyond that with other coaches and people, but as recently as two weeks ago, it was still going on. There was still the wink, wink, nod, nod. It's okay. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. So what, um, and that is, uh, that is the way of, uh, the NFL. That's the way of American society in general. Al Davis was seeing which way the wind, I'm I'm sorry, the Davises were seeing which way the the wind was blowing, you know? Oh, maybe this might blow over. Maybe someone else might say something and detract attention from them. Um, you know, let's, is it really going to be outrageous? And, and they always need the smoking gun. I mean, look at what happened with Ray Rice. They knew exactly what Ray Rice did, but when the video came out of him punching his wife unconscious in the elevator, oh, now it's a big deal. And so too much of the time we operate on public perception rather than what is right and what is wrong. So the Raiders were trying to minimize their losses, Um, but uh, it was not to be. So I do think that that is very discouraging, Um, but, you know, I'm not surprised.
0: You know, you mentioned the emails and Damaris Smith, the head of the NFL union, has raised concerns about what else could be contained. This came to light because of the Washington football team investigation. There's over 600,000 Emails. This didn't start over John Gruden, and so I'm curious. Jeff and I have discussed one. The NFL is the arbiter of what becomes public here. That seems a little, a little bit concerning to me. But, but two, the merits of what should be released. Demarco Smith has sort of insinuated there may be conversations about uh, minority hiring. There's been talk about whether Colin Kaepernick has discussed in there. Eric Reed, we know, was discussed in there. What are your thoughts on what should be made public and and how this process should occur? so that we can come up with a solution and not just salacious headlines?
3: Yeah, everything. (laughs) That's the short answer. Give the whole trove to a reputable third party. Um, You know, someone who comes to mind just off top of is a person who was a prominent figure in the NFL for quite some time um, and now has sort of receded from view, but uh, the attorney, David Cornwell. Uh, You know, David Cornwell has represented a lot of players who got in trouble and got a lot of uh, players out of big-time trouble. Ben Roethlisberger for one, um, Ryan Braun, et cetera, et cetera. But David Cornwell also is a proud and principled black man who has the trust of the league and also is, uh, in my opinion, someone who could be trusted to put out there what needs to be out there. And so if not him, find a reputable and trusted third party, give all the emails to that person. The NFL cannot adjudicate its own case. I mean, we know that their MO is to hide and deflect and delay. So, get them out of the NFL's hands into a third party's hands, review everything and then, you know, w- let's see what was done in the dark.
1: See see uh, the, that answer makes me feel so good because my concern Jason and I discussed this last week is that if you just hand it over to the media, it can get into some of the wrong hands where people are just looking for headlines. And and that seems to what you just suggested is the most reasonable thing you can possibly suggest is finding somebody like that. Um, David Cornwell, to me, I I mean, what you're suggesting seems great. Another person to me, if you want, is somebody like Tony Dungy, is is to get somebody who is respected on both sides of the table to sit down and review them. If it's going to be a group, it could be a panel as well, if that's what you want to do. But have somebody or a group of somebody sit down and go through them that everybody trusts, as opposed to this turning into, let's see how many sexy Twitter stories we can put out in the course Of a week or a month, that's not going to help advance the dialogue.
3: Right. And that's a great point. And, you know, as a proud car carrying member of the media, I absolutely don't think that it's just a good idea to give it all to us. However, you know they're all going after it right now. And the whole trove is just probably about four keystrokes away from being sent to somebody at some point. So if the NFL was smart, they would get ahead of it. Get ahead of it. Work with somebody trustworthy. Be ready to take your medicine. Be ready to properly punish the transgressions that are absolutely going to be found in there. But no, to to have it just be a a tweet fest, um, I think, would be the wrong move. That's a great point, Jeff.
0: We wanted to shift gears a little bit. uh, Talk we had last week, filmmaker David McMahon on one of the three filmmakers for the PBS Muhammad Ali documentary. Uh, You obviously are very familiar with that whole process there. Can you talk to us about Ali and what you thought about what seemed like to us a more complete telling of the story of his life in the context of the times?
3: Yeah, yeah. I thought the, the documentary was great. You know, and it's um, it. You know, so much of what Ken Burns does is establish a historical record in a very accurate and compelling and entertaining way. And Ali was nothing if not entertaining. And so um, I like the fact that he. You know, I'm a word guy, man, and I I do uh, love films and documentaries. I've been fortunate. The Undefeated has uh, given me a little bit of latitude to to dip a toe in those waters. Um, and so I was, uh, but I'm still a word guy, man. You know, I'm still in love with the written word. You got to dance with the girl, you know, who brought you to the party, and so I really like the fact that that documentary re- relied a lot on Jonathan Igg's biography of of uh, Ali, and he's featured in the documentary as well. So, um, you know, Ali, we needed that reminder of who he was and the principles on which he stood, and why he did the things he did, and how much he sacrificed in order to try to help black people and America in general. And how much of a goodwill peace ambassador he became a Muslim, mind you, in the sixties and the seventies was embraced because his heart was so good. The doc does a great job of uh, this, you know, talking about his flaws and he had many and it doesn't shy away from those things which is what history is all about. And I think that our country could learn from that in terms of accepting the reality of things and then deal with it. So you know, congratulations to the team that put it together into PBS. I highly recommend that um, people of all ages watch the doc um, because it's a it's a pretty um, significant achievement and a landmark in terms of uh, public figures who changed America, not just sports, but changed America.
1: You know, I watched that documentary and I've always been an admirer and fascinated by both the positive and the negative of, of some of the things that came out of his life. Um, but I keep thinking about it in in the lens of now and wondering, could Muhammad Ali have been Muhammad Ali in today's world with today's media? Or, or would would Muhammad Ali have been canceled at times for some of the things he said about his opponents? Would, would Muhammad Ali have turned into Muhammad Ali if you had your guess? based on what we, what our culture is now and what our media landscape is like at the moment? Hmm.
3: That's a fascinating question. I think he absolutely would have been Ali, but he just would have adjusted. He would have, you know, he would have read his opponent and um, responded accordingly. So I don't think he would have said the same things that he would have said, but because he also would have been a product of this time. Uh, But I think he still would have had that mouth. I think he still would have been, you would never have been able to shut him up. And he still would have been able to do what he did in the in the ring, you know, and so, yes, some of the things he said were were horrible and cruel and unnecessary. And as a person who believes in God, uh, I do not find it accidental that the weapon that he used to hurt so many people, which was his tongue, was taken away from him. So, you know. I do think there's that, but I, I don't think that the times would have changed Ali. I think he would have had about a gazillion followers on social media, and uh, and you know and he would have you know he was ahead of his time in terms of athletes standing up for their rights in a very strong way. Didn't someone recently compare uh, Kyrie Irving to uh, Ali? <laughs> I, think that's a little, I think
0: that comparison's a little bit off there, Jesse. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, man, just a little. I mean, we need the real deal here, you know, like, just a bit I, I mean, wide. <laughs> just a bit, just a bit, you know, so. So, no, I think he still would have been it would have been, you know, would he have been a black Muslim? Would he have been, you know, down with, uh, you know, the Nation of Islam? Today, you know, the Nation of Islam is is a changed institution from when he gathered it, you know, you know when, when he belonged to it. So, you I just know, would have loved to see I, the trash talk on his Twitter feed. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, because this dude, like, I mean, he was the like, he was you could not shut this man up. Like, we've all competed against somebody like that. No matter what. Even if they lose, they'd be like, oh, I'm still better. Like, you can't shut them up. And they can, you know, so I just think that it would have been amazing to see him. I think his voice would have been even more magnified. Um, but uh great question, you know, Jeff. I, I got a question for you guys what was the part of the documentary that surprised you? You know, was there was there stuff in there? You were like, wow, I really didn't know that about Ali. So,
1: you know, I, I knew a lot about Ali. The thing that surprised me most was actually towards the beginning of it, when they were talking about how this group of businessmen basically got together to keep him away from the mob. That's a, of, of the things that I saw in there that surprised me most, that was one of the, the, the ones the, that surprised me most. The thing that surprised me,
0: Look, I heard the trash talk in public. I never heard the trash talk in the ring. And so the way that they they took the sound down and there wasn't commentary and you could hear him talking and you could hear the fans and the reaction, That that was it made it so much more real to me. Like you heard about the greatness of Ali and you heard about the reaction the fans would have, both positive and negative, but you could hear it for yourself there. To me, that was really cool.
3: Yeah, that was great filmmaking. Um, to that point, When the dude wouldn't call him by his chosen name and insisted on calling him Clay, and he was just pulverizing, saying, "What's my name? What's my name?" Like that was, that was.
0: Yeah, like you're hearing it as he's like taking the man down. He's still talking to him on the way. It was just unbelievable. You know, you talk about the written words. So I'm gonna take you back to another book we had Keyshawn Johnson and Bob Globber on a few weeks ago, talking about their book, The Forgotten First. Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Marion Motley, and Bill Willis and the breaking of the NFL color barrier. Uh, We talked to them. One one of them was Jackie Robinson's college teammate. Everybody knows Jackie Robinson. There's Jackie Robinson Day. His number is retired. People know of him. Nobody knows the story of... These first four. What has to change as the NFL reaches another milestone anniversary so that we tell the story of the NFL and other sports and the breaking of their color barriers so that people get the recognition they deserve?
3: Hmm. Wow. See, this is why I rock with you guys, because you come up with these things that I haven't thought about before, these questions that need to be asked that other people are not uh thinking of so i've never thought about that what has to change you know why did do we not remember these four like like we do jackie robinson you know um i think part of it is because after they played there was this period where they you know i guess resegregated the league what would you call it they didn't have any black players in the nfl for quite some time after that so it was before
0: the fascinating thing was it was before that with was when they segregated and they broke it after and when Jeff and I interviewed Keyshawn and Bob, our, our question was sort of, do you think the NFL is doesn't want to celebrate being pulled along to this? Like, mm-hmm. they, they didn't go there voluntarily. They were sort of forced to. The, the Cleveland Rams moved to L.A. and had to go before a public tax board. And when they did it, a reporter asked the then general manager a question about, are you still going to have no people of color on your team? The next year, Kenny Washington and Woody Strode were brought on to the Rams. And so, you know, the course of history with the NFL, it just, it shocks me that the baseball celebrates Jackie. We have a day, we we take time out, we tell his story and what happened and embrace that history. And the NFL doesn't seem to do that.
3: Yeah, you know, I think part of it, the reason why Jackie is elevated is because his talent was so transcendent. And and certainly these players were extremely talented, but not to the level of Jackie. Same with the NBA a little bit. The NBA does celebrate it, but those first guys were not, uh, you know, the all t- among the all-time greats in league history as Jackie Robinson was. It's interesting because when I did the book with Coach Thompson, he kept telling me about all the guys who were way, like super duper duper stars of black basketball that never got a chance to play in the NBA. And all the people, oh yeah, Bill Russell was great. And he was, you know, and and Casey Jones and all these guys dudes like, man, there were tons of people better than them, you know? And I was like, wait a minute, coach, like better than them, better than Jordan? And he said, hey, we'll never know. Like I would, so John Thompson believes that there was probably people as good as Michael Jordan and Bill Russell who didn't get to play in the NBA. That's a little bit of a side note, you know. More to your point, Jackie's talent was part of what elevated him, and then it's like a made-for-TV story. And I think you guys are perfectly right. I love the point you're making. The NFL was dragged into it; they had to do it, you know. Branch Rickey took the initiative for a number of reasons, among them financial, mm-hmm. you know, and so. Uh, and also, Jackie Robinson was such like this this man of character, and everything he did after baseball. And also baseball held at that time, I think, baseball held this this place in, in American culture and the popular imagination that it doesn't hold anymore, but it was this singular focus of the country that allowed uh, Jackie's myth not myth, facts, you know, history, factual history to be built into what it was. Um, but you know, the NFL should do right by it. So what has to happen is, you know, um, and the climate is right for it now. I mean, hey, racial justice is in style now, right? Everybody wants to, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, um, which is another thing that the NFL was dragged into. Uh, so so you know. Chance, do it. but here's a chance
1: but here's a chance they don't have to be dragged into it now, even if they were dragged into it before you're now celebrating the 75th year uh, or no, I I forget what year they're they're celebrating, but, but they, they have a chance to do this. And by the way, before I forget, it sounds like you have your next book lined up, which is you you say that you say that you you talk to John and and that, you know, there are all these players that people don't know about. There's a book to write. And and it doesn't have to be that just like, Keyshawn's book and Bob Glauber's book. It doesn't have to be that these these people are lost to history. Right. We all need to. You know what though?
3: You're you're right. And let me. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I before I forget. So they don't. You know, now it's the perfect time for them to do it. This connects back to um, what we're talking about about how they're handling this John Gruden thing and the environment. When you have an organization that's not diverse, that doesn't include uh, the voices of people of color, that doesn't have women, that all has this you know, monochromatic older mindset. And is you miss these things, you know, you miss these things. And I don't think that the NFL hierarchy and leadership and particularly, I mean, it's a owner driven league and you know, they they dropped the ball, they fumbled. And, and there's nobody with evidently, there's nobody within that structure that says, Hey, this is something that needs to be done. So, you know, um, I'm sort of glad that they missed it. They don't deserve to do it now. Like, and part of everything that's going on in this whole, the pendulum swinging back and black people getting all this stuff, first black this, first black that still, you know, like it, it sort of irks me like, oh, really now George Floyd had to die for this to happen. The, the whole country had to burn, you know? So the fact that the NFL has missed the boat on it, you know, if they catch up fine, but if they don't, then that'll show that organization for what it truly is. Yeah, and
1: you're, and you're right, but. But I, just because the, elef, the, the elephant in the room is, is the NFL and whether they do right, the NFL shouldn't be celebrating themselves for being dragged into it. They should be celebrating these individuals for the brave things they did. We had Mel Renfro on a couple of weeks ago, and Mel Renfro was one of the leaders in, in dealing with segregated housing. For players, you know, mm-hmm. the, the African-American players would go to one area of town and, and, and the white players would go to a different area of town. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the people that, that kind of started that effort to stop it. And it's those kind of individuals that deserve to be celebrated for what they did. And the NFL should celebrate them. They shouldn't celebrate the shield and what, what the shield represents. They should be celebrating the individuals that made the shield, what it should be and what it should aspire to be going forward.
3: Man, a hundred percent, but how, and yes, um, love you guys, (laughs) love the way you you guys think about these things. How many NFL owners are willing to excavate that history or how many NFL owners are among those in our country who say, oh, stop dwelling on the past." I would guess a lot of them
0: are really concerned about what's in their own organization emails right now, frankly. Yeah. I mean, if I'm being, if I'm being real, like, let's be honest, there are conversations. If you're putting in an email, you're having the conversation in a boardroom someplace or in a back room or in an elevator. Like you're not just using those terms because you decided to write an email to somebody. There's a pervasive feeling among some people that has to be dealt with. And I hope it's an eye opener to everybody that look, I always, I used to work with political candidates and I used to tell them everything you say and do is subject to a Google search. So like people need to understand that it's, they don't listen either. No. (laughs) they don't listen either but but you know it's not just about putting it in writing at this point it's about changing the thought process and stopping those things from occurring and i don't know i don't have a larger answer but i hope that that the sunlight that you talk about is the disinfectant to this to try and move forward i just worry that they're going to try and sweep it under the rug i did want to ask you i know we're i don't want to go too long with you because we value your time i know you have a take on ben simmons that we want to get to uh i'll let jeff ask that but i wanted to ask you real fast at the undefeated you guys have done a ton of work about hbcus and I didn't want to not talk about that. You've got a story about Chris Paul's docu-series, Why Not Us? Hugh Jackson's impact at Tennessee State. Deion Sanders at Jackson State. What players are doing to turn their lives around at FAMU. Can you talk about the importance of HBCUs and the role they're playing right now and giving people the opportunity through athletics and culture right now?
3: Yeah, man. Thank you for asking because I'm, I'm so proud of The Undefeated and the editor who supervises that coverage, my man X, John X Miller. You know... HBCUs are in many ways the backbone of Black America and have played an unheralded but indispensable role in uplifting Black folk. Um, The majority of professional Black people in a number of disciplines graduated from HBCU. And so, and, and then sports, obviously, we all know about, historically speaking, the tremendous talent that Came to the pros from HBCUs before integration and all that talent was stolen. So it's pretty sad now that um, they don't have enough resources to collect the best talent. But at the undefeated, we're continuing to shine a light on what they're doing for the black community. And let's not forget, you know, we all look at football as as the path to uh, you know the NFL as, as if that's the only thing or the. But really, it's about giving kids their thousands and thousands of kids, young people playing football, who are never going to the NFL, not thinking about it, but it's a part of their life and their experience. And it it adds character to their uh, development. So the HBCUs continue to do that for so many people. So I just love the fact that we're highlighting those things. And then, hey man, they can, they can ball too. You know, they can ball and they have some talent and uh, they're getting more attention which will lead to more talent, you know, and so what Deion Sanders is doing at Jackson State and and where he goes, cameras follow. And, you know, Chris Paul's situation is really interesting because if you, if you listen to what he says about his HBCUs experience within his family, and he's from North Carolina, so his family had a rich tradition of being involved at HBCUs, but he went to Wake Forest. He went to the big white school because, it, you know, if you're trying to get to the NBA, he figured that that was a better shot. But the way he gives back and highlights these HBCUs now is just is just wonderful. Um, I'm proud of him for having that uh, that drive and investing his time and his money in that. And more people need to recognize the value of HBCUs. And for those of you out there who think, "Oh, why are we doing something special for Black people?" There's plenty of white students at HBCUs, there's plenty of white athletes on HBCU sports teams, predominantly so on most of the baseball teams and things like that. I believe J.R. Smith has several white golf teammates down there, you know, at A&T. And so, um, you know, these are black centered schools, but they are not segregated. It's part of the black experience. And last, my last comment is that a lot of people overlook the fact that in an educational environment for black children and young adults in elementary school, through high school and college. To go to school in an all white environment where you're one of five or 10% at most of of the population in terms of black kids, it's tough. My children go through that, I went through that. So to be in a black environment with black professors provides a comfort level that most white people have and just take for granted. So um, thanks for letting me wax unpoetically about HBCUs. And thanks for paying attention to the coverage over there at the undefeated.
1: Well, and there's there, it's important for all the reasons that you're talking about. And, And as you said, it doesn't mean that it's just a black college. It's the, the first word is historically. It, it's not exclusively. And, and to me, the important thing of, like, they talk about Deion Sanders and, and the, the light that he's shining on it by going there. To me, like, people don't seem to understand that football may not, shouldn't be as emphasized as it is, or basketball or any sport, but it brings attention. And bringing attention leads to more money and more money leads to better educational resources. So it it is important to shine a light on the football team and the basketball team and the other sports in addition to the university because it does provide additional opportunities to the school that may not have been there before. I mean, I went to, to Michigan and Pitt. And they have plenty of resources. And part of the resources that they have are because of their
3: football programs
1: and their basketball programs and the fact that you see those names on
3: television every weekend. Absolutely. Like John Thompson said in his book, when we're winning, enrollment goes up, alumni donations go up. Those HBCUs really need the, that that money. You know, enrollment equals revenue. So, um, great point, Jeff, as usual.
1: So so we might as well end on a basketball note. As, as behind your shoulder for those people that will be able to see the video. You you are the co-author of a book with John Thompson, and I Came as a Shadow. Let's talk a little bit about Ben Simmons. So for Philadelphians, which is where we're based, we're now dealing with with the Ben Simmons ordeal. What are your thoughts on on the way that Ben Simmons is dealing with
3: it? Well, first thing is that he's still a young man. And when I was his age, I did A lot of things that were, you know, uh, very questionable. I made a lot of questionable decisions. My mindset and attitude were not where they should have been, but I got to live out my struggles without the world paying attention. So um, everything I say is really in the spirit of hoping that this young man learns from this and improves. So the deal is, man, it seems really obvious to me. And it comes from the fact that we put athletes on such a pedestal and we give them everything. And so a kid like Ben Simmons has gotten everything. And has his every need and desire and wish catered to since a very young age because they knew from when that boy was very young he might be the number one pick and so what we're looking at is he has been spoiled and enabled and for the first time in his life he's not successful at something and then how do you deal with that you know and he's I believe, responding in the wrong way with petulance, with entitlement, with sort of throwing a bit of a tantrum. And I understand, yeah, it was pretty harsh what your teammates said about you after that last playoff, you know, uh, performance, if you could call it that. You know, it was pretty tough, man. But hey, it was also true. Sometimes we got to buck up and take that on the chin and use it to get better. And so, you know, I'm not against him wanting to be traded. I think players should be able to play wherever they want. But I do believe that until that point, he needs to change his attitude around. And I think it's just a function of growing up and it's a emblematic of how people with athletic gifts are taken care of and catered to and enabled up until the point where they fail and then they have a harsh reality coming to them. So I think he'll get better. I think he's got good people advising him. I think Doc Rivers is a good guy. I think Rich Paul is a good guy. I think that they're telling him the right thing. He has two parents in his life, but you know, he's a 25 year old multimillionaire, man. And I was a 25 year old hundredaire and you couldn't tell me nothing. <laughs> 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 so, but he'll get it, he'll get it.
0: <laughs> look, Jesse, we could talk to you all day. Uh, we always appreciate the time and the depth we get to go with you on these issues and look forward to keep following what you're doing on, on The Undefeated and having you back on next time to uh, take us through this all.
3: Oh man, Jason, Jeff, uh, what you guys do is so valuable. The issues you raise are, are what? So many more people should be thinking about. Plus, you guys know sports forward and back, but then you get the whole bigger picture to it. So salute you guys. I'm I'm here. Whenever you guys want to talk, I'm here. Thanks so and, much. And we're
1: Jesse. here whenever you want to talk, including when you come visit and, and watch your son uh, play some good basketball at Drexel.
3: Yes, sir. Defending CAA champs, baby. Back to back. What's
0: up? We will be following. <laughs> Jesse, thanks so much for the time, man. You take care of yourself. Jeff, with Jesse, obviously we want to catch him when he comes for Drexel. So many things we talked about. We obviously ended with Ben Simmons, which is where the rest of the evening will go
1: tonight. Yeah. Can we do a public service announcement? Sure. Uh, it's easy to pile on Ben because he he deserves what he's getting because he's making the situation. It's, it's his own issue. But I've seen stuff over the last day and weeks of people just piling on. it. Just because somebody does something wrong or that you don't like doesn't mean pile on. Why don't people go to the stadium tonight and just kind of enjoy the rest of the team? Cheer them on and like have a good time? Ben won't be there. But look, I mean, what we saw the other night, the team was fun to watch.
0: And clearly that's an issue that's going to have to get resolved. You know I'm already sick of the circus.
1: (laughs) I just keep texting. Uh, Yeah, but the players are too. They didn't ask for this. No. They didn't They didn't deserve this. And anybody who thinks that Joel, you know, d- did something wrong, he didn't. He said what was on everybody else's mind, and he's the one who has to deal with it. Because he's the punching bag if if he doesn't fight back.
0: How long do you think this goes? I mean, obviously, Daryl Morey's out there yesterday saying four <laughs> years. I, I, I got a bridge to sell you if you think this takes four years. But is this something where they wait, you think, till December to make a move? They try to get him back in, get him playing, get a little value? Because yeah, so, apparently if- the way it is today is he's gonna go and figure things out and potentially come back, but he participated in practice, which I know you made fun of me for saying that's a good thing, but.
1: Yeah, the fact is uh, they they don't have to worry about making the playoffs. They're gonna make the playoffs as long as people remain healthy. But, and the NBA doesn't start till Christmas even though it's started now. So there's no hurry. It's just like having an injured player. And so they can wait this out and it appears that Maury has the support of the ownership and that's it. I'm going to remind you that there's no hurry as I keep texting you the stories that you reply back,
0: I don't like clickbait. I'm so tired of I hate of clickbait. Hearing this and I got to tell you, there was a
1: story today that was <laughs> a, a fake Ben Simmons goodbye <laughs> letter that was so below the belt oh, that it was just- Yeah, you weren't a fan of that one. I, I think
0: you should be embarrassed by that article. Yeah, you weren't a fan of that one. Jeff, uh, we got about 20 seconds till we're off the air. Any final thoughts as we head into the weekend this week?
1: My final thought was it's- we have some of the best guests on this show, and and we are so lucky to have these kind of guests that that really bring about real issues and tell us stuff that people actually want. to. Eat.
0: That's going to be it. Make sure to join us next Friday Night Tough. You start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.